Hi, welcome to Mulling It Over, Bob Hodling's new podcast with R.I. Future. I'm your co-host, Bob Plain, and I'm here with your host, Bob Hodling. Hey, Bob. How you doing? I'm very good. How are you today, Bob? Excellent. Thank you for uh, giving me this opportunity. I'm really excited about this. Cool. Me too. Me too. So we are putting together this podcast. This is going to be Bob's weekly opportunity to kind of delve into issues that affect Rhode Island, people in general, life as we know it. Um, am I being too broad? Or? Wow. Yeah, it's, it's great if I know a little bit about that. But on top of that, you know, as well as I do, my, my area of expertise is working with young people. And I've got a little bit of background with politics and a little bit of background in social justice. And uh, it would be nice to sit around and chat about stuff like that from time to time. And we're going to kind of talk about where those three issues sometimes meet. and Yeah, and somehow in a convoluted way, convoluted way they all merge. At least in my head they do. <laughs> we'll see if we can make it happen on the Internet as exactly. well. Exactly. So, so let's start off, uh, tell our listeners a little something about you, Bob. What do you, what, what do, you do? What do you love? What's your thing in life? Wow. Um, Well, for the last uh, 30 years, I've been the director of the East Greenwich Drug Program. Mm -hmm. And in essence, what that is, is I've got two halves of a full-time job. One half of what I do is I treat people and assess people who have uh, substance abuse and substance-related concerns. And then the other half of what I do uh, is the fun stuff, more community development uh, youth leadership po- programs, parenting programs. And again, I've been doing that uh, for 30 years. Prior to that, I worked in uh, the prison systems. I worked at a place called Ocean Tides. I also worked with uh, children with special needs. So I've been in the human service field now for pretty close to 33 to 35 years. And you're not too shy about dabbling in the politics either, are you? No, I don't know uh, if I know anything about it, but, you know, I was a member No of one the... <laughs> in politics does. <laughs> That's true. Um, uh, I was on a school committee out in West Greenwich uh, for about five years. On top of that, let's face it, when you grow up and go to school through the 60s and the Vietnam War and, you, you know, you follow Martin Luther King, um, it's hard not to be in politi- involved in politics and then when your whole musical culture is tied into guys like Bob Dylan and Neil Young, you, you bump into it from time to time. So it's been something that uh, I've always been interested in, and it's something that, uh, you know, I, I admire a number of people who, who do get into it. What are some of the more fun political issues you've taken on over the years? Well, tell, me, tell me about the smoking ordinance. So I, you are kind of responsible or spearheaded, if you will, the first uh, anti-smoking ordinance in Rhode Island? Is that the right way to yeah. say that? It was the first anti-smoking ordinance in, in the restaurants. Okay. okay. So uh, I think it was like 2000, 2001, um, as part of my uh, drug program job, I had some real concerns, and a number of uh, professionals around the nation had some real concerns about the impact secondhand smoke mm-hmm. was having on people. You know, we all know about the long history uh, of people who do smoke, but secondhand smoke 
there are no filters for people who are in a room with someone smoking, especially if you went into restaurants. If you can remember back, remember back in those den, days, they were like going into opium dens. There was smoke all over yeah. the place. Yeah. So at that time, I, you know, just from some of the research and, uh, you know, some of my own personal opinion, I, I had some real concerns about people who were working in restaurants. Mm-hmm. I had some real concerns about young people who went, were going into restaurants with their parents uh, about the negative impact that smoking was having on them. So we got together, uh, pulled together a nice little team, people from the American Cancer Society, the Lung Association, and we wrote up an ordinance that we presented to the town of East Greenwich. And uh, it initiated a real interesting process. And by that, you mean the business community was scared to death of this idea. Yes. Initially, the politicians jumped on it until um, some of the businesses, some of them who had real long success, developed a tremendous fear because we were asking them to change their business. Obviously, their bar business had a significant amount of smokers. And some restaurants feared that some of these changes was going to lose the money. And uh, no matter how many research studies we, we provided, no matter how much evidence was proven from other communities around the nation that this was successful, uh, ameliorating smoke was, smoking was successful, it was still a very frightening thing for many of the restaurant owners to do. So a number of them got together they hired a lobbyist from, I believe, the I.J. Reynolds people, and uh, they went to war. And not Against it, a little town council, huh? Against a little town council. I love the yeah. imagery of a lobbyist for R.J.R. against the East oh. Greenwich town council. Well, I think they, their big fear was that if East Greenwich went first, they'd see other communities. And that was one of the things, because we were getting cheerled on by, in the behind, behind the scenes by some politicians, by the Cancer Society. So they had a vested interest to in seeing us win. So there was this whole political dynamic behind it. And I think that... Uh, and indeed, you guys won, and East Greenwich became the first community in Rhode Island to pass a law like this, right? Yeah, we won. There was some interesting battles. There were numerous hearings in front of the council, rewrites with ordinance, a lot of sneaky meetings in the middle of the night and phone (laughs) calls. And it ended up going all the way to Judge Fogel on a state level. And after maybe pretty close to three years of battling this out, we we wound up winning and... uh, and I think it was a real move forward, and today it's something that you know people take for granted. But back then, uh, it was a tough fight. And now, more recently, you've gotten involved with the fight against high-stake testing mm-hmm. and the kneecap test. Tell me about that. Tell me about how you see high-stakes testing fitting into your job description as someone who works with disaffected youths and i'm not sure if that's a term you use or not i i use it but yeah no, no that's good but okay. i i think it was not so much that i stumbled onto it because again as i said earlier i i have a long history of working with young people who struggled either at the training school and prison systems uh i work with people who had disabilities at the trudeau center so i've always been pretty in tune to working with a variety of populations. Here in East Greenwich, uh, I I began to see maybe about 10, 12 years ago, 
uh, a number of high school kids, even before the whole testing thing came out, that began developing significant stress-related disorders from the stress that was placed on them in school. East Greenwich is a very successful academic school, and kids uh, were having, um, there was a proliferation of mental health disorders, many of whom, many of which revolved around uh, stress. Now move forward a little bit. And this is kind of kids taking their studies so seriously that it's having these emotional consequences and other aspects yeah. of... Yes. Okay. Yes, and sometimes it manifested itself to a point they were taking antidepressants and, yep. and stuff like that. So move forward a little bit with the new state standards um, post No Child Left Behind, or maybe coinciding with No Child Left Behind. Uh, there were new standards that said that for a student to graduate high school, they had to complete four years of academic rigor, do a senior project, and now pass a standardized test. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things became evident right off the bat is that there were kids with special needs, kids who were English language learners, that were going to have a significant amount of difficulty um, passing those tests. On top of that, after I did a little extra research, I began to recognize that maybe up to 40% of the young people around the state were going to have a difficult time with that, especially kids who came from disadvantaged socioeconomic situations, some young people who were English language learners, and again, the kids with special needs. 40% is an alarming, alarming number. And on top of that, not only, you know, even though they might be given chances to re rehabilitate themselves or take the test over numerous times, the the trepidation and the anxiety that this causes is one thing. And also one final thing, limiting um, an academic career to success or failure based on subject matter of just English and just math, I think it's pretty short-sighted. Kids who are good with mechanical dexterity, culinary skills, who have intuitive skills, those things get put by the wayside a little bit. So you put all those things together in one big picture. Um, I have some real concerns about how kids are educated. And, I, you know, at one time, where Piaget, Erickson, Maria Montessori, and Howard Gardner drove education, people that were really in tune the developmental process, the people who drive the bus now in education are people who run Walmart and people like Bill Gates and, uh, you know, one time people who developed, you know, who had a whole career based on understanding child development, the people who are driving it now understand how to make money. That's a fascinating difference in kind of who was leading the educational movement. I'm guessing that first group of folks, they are philosophers, are they educational? They were educators, okay. they, they were uh, psychologists, they were, you know, they were either therapists and educators themselves. Maria Montessori, there are still Montessori schools yep, around now course, yep. who are very child-centered schools based on developing a team approach and a lot of plays involved. Uh, and now... It's almost where, where education was part and part, you know, partial of um, 
development, child development. Mm-hmm. Now it's like a disjunct thing. It's not it, the developmental process is almost different from ed, the educational process. People, kids have been turned into edu, little educational units almost. It, tell me why you hang it on Walmart and Bill Gates and I don't think you mentioned Goldman Sachs, okay. but <laughs> they're another one that's yeah, in there as yeah. far as I'm concerned. So why is it that you feel these kind of folks are driving education policy these days? Well, they're putting a lot of money into it. They're putting yeah. a lot of money into charter schools. People are listening to them. I think we have a tendency to believe that if you make a lot of money, you're highly successful. You're highly successful at making money, and I'm not minimizing what they do within their realm. But I think what ha- what's happening now is I think that public education is taking a tremendous beating when in essence, I don't think it has to take a tremendous beating. I think that schools over the last 20 years have been asked to become social service providers. So much has changed. You know, they're feeding young people. They're uh, counseling young people. You have a tremendous number of young people who are coming in with different languages. I actually think that public schools do a phenomenal job. Do I think there's some issues? Of course I do. I think that mm-hmm. we have to add some things and modify some things. I, I, of course we do. But I think what's happened is, that due to the latest testing dynamic, is we've assigned blame. Kids are getting blamed for not achieving. Teachers are getting blamed for in places like Central Falls and you know, who are dealing, if I was going to compare the district that I work in right now, East Greenwich, we do a phenomenal job in some areas of sending kids to colleges and whatnot. But as far as a populace is concerned, everybody here speaks English. We come from a pretty um, advantaged uh, group of parents. Uh, We have an incredibly safe community, and there's a tremendous amount of advantages at least academic, to compare us to Central Falls where a number of kids speak a different language. Philosophically, parents might have a different mindset about what they're expecting and constitutes success. Now, sometimes you'll hear the Department of Ed say, well, kids, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going in that direction. Of course, kids from Central Falls can go to college. Of course, they're just as smart as I am. But I'm saying some people are starting at the starting line. Some people are starting 10, 15 yards back. And to not factor in things like language barriers, to not factor in some cultural norms, or access to money is absurd. And I think that recently when the Central Falls teachers were castigated for not having the same type of test scores, for example, that East, East Greenwich might have. That's an absurdity. That's, that's absolutely ridiculous. And, uh, and, and stuff like that um, began to you know, just get my attention, and I just thought they were things that were unfair, and we had to speak out about them a little bit. It's almost as if there's two different racetracks that kids in Rhode Island have to race around, but we're, you know, kind of timing them on, you know, we're holding them to the same standard as far as how long it takes them to finish this race, but... Absolutely, and and even when you determine, you know, determine something to be the race to the top, uh, you know, some kids grow at different rates. Some kids grow physically ahead of their maturity. Some kids... Uh, look like they're 25, but emotionally they're, they're 15. I also think that 
uh, you know, like you were just saying, some of the, the barriers that people have culturally and whatnot to compare them. Um, like, for example, some parents in Central Falls might have just come over from another country and speak another language. Mm-hmm. Their children are going to come home from school speaking perfect English. In their own home, there's, there's a variety of different dynamics going on. And I also think that in some, some of those homes, maybe going out and getting a job at 16 or 18 constitutes success. I think that we really have to go back and look at you know, some of those value systems, I think that we're confusing the fact that, you know, some of the kids in Central Falls, they're all just as smart as everybody else. You give them all the same talents, the same, I mean, the same opportunities. Yeah. They can all go to college. But the one thing that really bothers me about this, too, is that teachers end up getting blamed. Yeah. Teachers end up getting blamed for some of the social concerns and the way to add, to, to add additional blame to them is to say it's insulting that teachers think that all kids can't learn. Well, they, of course the teachers think kids, all kids can learn. They're just starting. One's at the starting line and another one's 10 yards back. Right, right. So we kind of thought that we'd use this space on the Internet to discuss kind of the finer points of some of these issues. Tell me about what some of your ideas for this podcast are, Bob. Who are we going to talk to on your show? Yeah, um, I like to do a couple of things. You know, obviously, uh, for a long period of time, I've, I've worked with young people and their families. Uh, there are some people out there doing great work with young people and families. There are some young people out there themselves who are doing some wonderful things. And then I'd also like to talk a little bit about our culture, about the culture and the environment that uh, young people are living in today and what kind of an impact that has on them. And, you know, from the music they listen to, from some parenting issues, from some of the messages they get from we the adults. And, uh, again, it's almost like a... uh, Charles Dickens thing, in many ways, it's the best of times and the worst of times. The best of times, we have tremendous opportunities to gain access to information through technology. Um, We've got a number of people who are really big advocates for young people. I think that young learners are as enthusiastic and talented as they've ever been. And then it's the worst of times is that I think that uh, we become a blame society, a consumer society, and some of the people who are driving the bus for kids, uh, I don't think they understand child development. I think some you know, kids can be made money off of, and, the, and, and on top of that, uh, teachers can get blamed. So there's a lot of, so I'd like to look at the milieu that young people are involved in and the impact that that has on them. How do we do that? What are some of the issues we're going to discuss on this show rather than just kneecap tests and... Yeah, well, on the one hand, you know, obviously uh, some of the clinical issues, stress, some of the clinical issues like substance-related issues and parenting. I'd also like to look at some, like some cultural, like the music kids listen to, the impact technology has on young people. On top of that, I'd like to... to bring in some young people themselves who are doing wonderful things. Some way down the line, maybe even look at some of the people from Providence Student Union, uh, youth-to-youth organizations, hear about some of the wonderful things that they are doing. 
So there's a myriad of issues. Uh, I think, uh, you know, and on top, this is almost like uh, science fiction. We can make up some of this as we go along. But if I was going to boil it down to its uh, least common denominator, I would, I'd like to look at youth and family issues and some of the culture that impacts them. I love that. I'm really looking forward to the show, Bob. How about you? Well, I'll tell you what. Again, I think this is a really great opportunity. I think that, uh, like I said, as you know, I can just about turn on a computer, but I think it's fantastic that uh, I have an opportunity to do this, and you're giving me an opportunity to do this. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of work to be done, but I look at this as a blast, and I'm looking forward to doing it. You're a natural. I pretty much just hit record and haven't said a word since. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what. You notice uh, my wife was in the studio earlier. She had to leave because she has to listen to this 24 hours a day. So I might have gained a few listeners, but I definitely lost one. <laughs> we'll see how that works out in the long exactly. run. Exactly. On the way home tonight, it'll be, oh, do I have to listen to this again? <laughs> yeah. But again, I, I really want to let you know I appreciate this opportunity and... Uh, you know, hopefully we can help a few people out, but I'm also I'm amenable to listening to people from the audience if they're uh, you know experts in the field that maybe they'd like to get in contact have contact with me and maybe put them on the show. Yeah, we'll get them on here. Everyone knows how to get in touch with me at editor at rifuture.org. Email me there, and I'll put you in touch with Bob and. We'll see you here next week. Again, thanks a lot. I hope you have a good week. By the way, this is a great place out here.